Peter Meyer was a Republican congressman from the west side of the state who lost his bid for re-election in 2022. He recently said he would like to seek the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate in 2024. On the podcast today, we hear from Peter Meyer about why he's running and why he thinks voters should support him. Peter Meyer, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on this morning. So I want to start with uh, the question I ask all candidates who announce for public office. Tell me why you're running to to get the Republican nomination for the U.S. Senate seat next year and why you think voters ought to choose you. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity. I mean, in a nutshell, I am incredibly disappointed that I do not see candidates talking about how to make sure we're solving some of our long-term problems. How do we regain confidence that by 2050, we will be in the middle of the next great American century and be able to escape this feeling that we have today of just lurching from crisis to crisis, of not having any long-term planning and having a political class you know, that is only looking towards maybe the end of the week, the end of the month, or at most the next election cycle. That is not how we're going to be competing with other countries and winning with countries like China if we don't get our heads around some long-term goals. And in order to do that, you need to have candidates who aren't afraid to be bold, You know, who know what needs to be done, who will share and express that vision, but also how to connect that to a pathway that is realistic and that can be implemented. That's what I'm bringing into this race. You know, I've served in Congress. I have served our country in Iraq, uh, and I'm looking for I'm looking forward to an opportunity to hopefully uh, earn the votes of the people of Michigan and serve again. So let's drill down on some of those things that you say we need to be focusing on in order to make this another great American century. What what would that look like? What are the pillars uh, of your campaign? I mean, those those pillars from a policy standpoint are number one. I mean, focusing on families, making sure that rising cost of living issues, uh, whether that is healthcare, housing, education, uh, that we are implementing appropriate policies to get those in place. Uh, which I am happy to go into depth, but that'll take a very long time. But you know, it's it's all about the pocketbook uh, primarily, and that is also being impacted by heavy government spending that is leading to. Uh, rising inflation, that then the Federal Reserve is trying to tamper with rising interest rates, which are making everything from your mortgage to car payments to credit card payments more expensive. You know, so it's pocketbook number one, but then also making sure that our position in the world and our strength at home is bolstered by American energy dominance. We need to be increasing our natural gas exports. We need to be building more nuclear power plants at home that allow us access to clean, cheap, and reliable energy. And we also need to be making sure that we have security above all else, because if if we were to underpin our prosperity um, and our global dominance, we need to be protecting ourselves here at home. And that comes down to making sure that our border is secure, that we come to an agreement on where immigration needs to be and get out of this period of just constant chaos and constant crisis and insecurity. So um, give me give me your thumbnail assessment of where. We are now almost four years into the presidency of, of Joe Biden on those issues. For instance, uh, there are reports now that we have cut child poverty in half in this country, despite the, the kind of uh, troubling economic indicators uh, that you were talking about. Uh, we have more people 
who are covered by health care than ever before in America. That's uh, dating back to the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And and some of these other issues that you're talking about are better than they have been, even though we do have uh, these, these uh, sort of short-term issues. So uh, what, what do you think we need to do differently than what we have been yeah. doing? You're absolutely right. I mean, we do have more folks who are covered, you know, and are on health insurance policies. Now, the biggest challenge there is the skyrocketing premiums that they've seen. You know, if you're covered by your employer, for the average family of four, that is costing the employer roughly $23,000, which some people could say, oh, that's great. My company's paying for it, which is understandable. The reality is that that is money that you otherwise probably would have gotten in salary. Right. But because it's kind of hidden on the corporate balance sheet, because it doesn't show up on your W-2 form, you know, it's still you know, a massive hit. Uh, or it's still money that otherwise would have gone to somebody in the form of a salary. And then obviously we have uh, the public plans, you know, which are heavily subsidized by the government. So you got your taxpayer dollars flowing. In. You know, so there's obviously a benefit to having more coverage. But the challenge is we've done nothing to try to control rising costs. And that has just made it even more difficult and more stark, the distinction between, you know, those who have employer-sponsored plans and those who are on, on public plans. Uh, now, when it comes to child poverty, obviously we saw you know some, some really good short-term improvements, um, and, and I'm very supportive of efforts to bolster like the child care tax credit, or sorry, the child tax credit and other initiatives to try to cut down on that. The challenge comes in when you know it's one thing to have a government program that helps bridge a moment or get somebody out of a difficult situation. Where too many of these programs wind up is they just create a dependency where once you get on it, you don't get off. And so there are some short-term benefits for sure, but if you're just locking into a longer term, this assumption that um, rather than helping somebody get off their feet, helping somebody weather a difficult moment, you know, being something to, to catch people as a net in that moment when they fall, if then we're just transferring more and more of our economy into the government sector then you are putting those people in the whims of the government. And what the government gives, the government can take away. And I don't want the government to have that power. Hmm. So I, I want to talk about you as a Republican candidate uh, for this Senate seat. Um, in a statement to Politico, National Republican Senatorial Committee Executive Director Jason Thielman said that essentially you are not viable in a primary election. And there's worry that if you were nominated, the Republican base would not be enthused in the general election. Um, let's let's take this in two parts. That's pretty strong language. Uh, uh, but let's take this in two parts. What's your argument to Republican voters in Michigan to make you the party's nominee? And how different, I guess, does that look than it did last year uh, when you had to seek re-election for your congressional seat and and faced this problem inside the party? Yeah, I mean, the, the kind of establishment D.C., kind of swampy folks, um, you know, who think that they know, you know, how things work. Meanwhile, the world crumbles around them. I have a good strong amount of contempt for them. Um, but it does crack me up. I think their statement uh, there's never any any poking at the internal contradiction of, oh, this guy can't win a primary. But by the way, if he can win the primary, then he can't win the general. Or I think they also told me uh, we don't think Michigan's winnable. Um, but if you're the nom- but if if you're in the race, then we the, the nominee might be somebody who won't be able to win. It's like, OK, guys, like, <laughs> which is it here? Hmm. Uh, I mean, the reality is, um, you know, that some of these groups, they have their chosen candidate, right? They know they, they have uh 
the, the person that they like, who's not going to rock the boat, who's going to do what they're told. Uh, you know, that at the end of the day is not me. Um, you know, I was I was kind of forced out of my seat. You know, obviously uh, by a, a slim majority of my uh, you know, former primary voters, mm-hmm. I lost by three points in 2022. But it was after you know both you know the uh, kind of Mar-a-Lago paired up with the establishment Democrats, and they uh, kind of meddled in the primary from from both directions. Uh, now, my pitch is, you know, if you do, if you do what you've always done, you're going to get what you've always gotten here. What have we gotten? We've gotten, you know, folks who are kind of uninspiring, who are not going to rock the boat. We're just offering, you know, kind of simple, tired, bland, you know, proposals when the chief irony is, I mean, what was it that Donald Trump brought to the Republican Party? He brought some energy. He brought some vitality. He wasn't afraid to slaughter some sacred cows. He wasn't afraid to, you know, be a little bit of a bull in a china shop. Uh, and a lot of the folks who, you know, are looking to to him for inspiration or are just bone terrified of him uh, fail to see what it was that the voters actually appreciated about what Donald Trump brought. Mm. So, so what's different about next year. I mean, as you point out, you you narrowly lost renomination for the House seat last year uh, that was driven by Trump supporters, right? Uh, They were more attracted to another Republican candidate. Why won't they? Why won't they be next year? So it'll be a little bit harder for the Democrats to drop, you know, a half million dollars in ads boosting my my primary challenger if it's a, a five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten way race. Number one, you know, and number two, uh, I think it's actually a great opportunity to have a race that'll be a lot more about the issues because it's not just a head-to-head. It's not just going to be a two-way. It takes a lot of signatures to get on the ballot for sure. I mean, we saw in the gubernatorial last go-around, um, you know, that a lot of candidates you know had signature issues that plague them. Um, but when it comes to the 2024 cycle, I'm frankly excited at the opportunity to not just have it be, you know, a, a one-dimensional race. Uh, when you have a number of candidates, they each have to make a case for themselves. Uh, it's just a little bit harder to say, oh, well, that guy over here, he sucks, but uh, you know, vote for me. And, okay, you may lot, dislodge a vote from the one guy, it might go to the other opponent. Uh, it's a bit more of a complex dynamic, and uh, I think that makes it, it, that encourages folks to make an affirmative case for themselves rather than just engage in you know, the negative politicking that we've become all too familiar with. Yeah. Uh, we're talking with Peter Meyer, a former Congress member and Republican who voted to impeach former uh, President Donald Trump while he was in the House. He has announced uh, recently that he is running for the U.S. Senate seat that will be open here in Michigan next year after uh, U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, a Democrat, uh, retires. Uh, I, I do want to talk more about the former president and, and the person who would like to be president again. Uh, he will be, uh, I think, by all all measures, on the ballot here in Michigan uh, during the primary next year as well. Uh, one of the issues that you had inside your party is that you voted to impeach Donald Trump. Um, uh, I, I want to talk about that vote. Do you do you feel like uh, that was the right decision to make? Would you would you make it again? And why won't that hurt you again next year? No, I mean, quite simply, um, you know, when it comes to the former president, I, I don't have a black or white opinion. I still think that the actions on, on and leading to January 6th were disgraceful, um, and I voted to accordingly um, on that. To 
that having been said, uh, you know, if the choice is down to, you know, Donald Trump or Joe Biden, that is not a difficult decision for me. Um, you know, I think while the vast majority of the American public would probably prefer to have different options, you know, in November of 2024, uh, I will support the Republican nominee. I will do everything in my power to make Joe Biden a one term president. I've been incredibly disappointed by how he has uh you know, frankly, run roughshod over a lot of norms and principles and done in maybe far less dramatic ways, but done you know, a lot of the same damage that Democrats accused Donald Trump of doing. Well, can so we if, can we stop there a second? Yeah, can you be more specific? I'm more than happy to. Oh, absolutely. Um, I am a big believer in separation of powers. I am a big believer in, in legislative supremacy that we are would be in a much better position as a country if our rules, laws, regulations, if far more of that was being you know, implemented by people that were actually accountable to the voters. Right. If the people we sent to D.C. could actually do something as opposed to having their hands tied because you have a president and an executive branch and an administrative state who takes all that power away and makes it far more difficult where there is a rule or a regulation that needs to be changed to actually hold somebody accountable to make that change. And the things that I think Biden has done that are, you know, maybe seem innocent um, from the outside because somebody may support, say, student loan debt relief, but taking 20-year-old pieces of legislation, applying a novel interpretation and using that to justify the expenditure of a half trillion dollars should rightly terrify any American, even if they, they may not pay attention to what you know, that money is going for, or they may think that money is being spent in a good direction. But the, the the door that you're kicking open, the precedent that's being established and how that could be abused by a president in the future for something you may passionately disagree with should frighten people. Hmm. At the same time, the OSHA mandates that he implemented looking to make sure to mandate you know vaccinations for employees in the absence of evidence that it would cut down on in a transmission, but just the all of the different ways in which under this administration he's run over the, the that core idea of separation of powers uh, and basically dared the Supreme Court to stop him rather than have any prudential mind towards what is or isn't you know facially constitutional while some of the policies he's implemented with a 50-50 Senate and a very, very slim majority, I mean, the historically slim majority um, for the House Democrats in uh, the 117th Congress that I served in, uh, you know, it, it flew in the face of Biden saying he was going to be some, you know, moderate candidate, that he was going to be a transition figure, that he was going to go and be a bridge between, you know, the, the party of the past and the party of the future. Uh, I mean, instead, he had enacted some of the most progressive policies of any president since, you know, at least Lyndon Johnson, if not FDR, yeah. uh, without the mandate from the American people. So, so I guess my, my question but is... He's a nice guy who eats ice cream, right? Well, I mean, but but I but I guess my my question is in the contrast to someone like Donald Trump who whose own abuses of executive power are are becoming more evident every day and whose plans if he were to win next year are really about the expansion of of presidential power. I mean, he he has said things, uh, he's planning things that that would make the things that you're pointing out uh, about President Biden, which are policy issues uh, uh, would make them look no, my disagreement on the petty. process I may not think the policy is good but you know it's the it's the abuse of the process that concerns but you think me. Donald Trump will example, abuse that process less than Joe Biden oh I, I I have been frankly disgusted by the fact that but essentially the lack of accountability within the media towards those abuses by Joe Biden again because he seems like a nice guy who you know uh, likes ice cream right so he kind of gets that grandpa pass my challenge with 
with a like when it comes to Donald Trump, the good thing is the media actually covers him now. I think oftentimes or, or holds him to account. I think oftentimes in ways that are okay. Well, this was not as much of a precedent change, you know, um, as as is maybe you know the the kind of hyperventilating suggests. Uh, but I think that some of the former president's proposals, when he talks about Schedule F and civil service reform. Uh, you know, he may talk about them in ways that seem ominous and scary. The reality is right now we have much of our administrative state just cannot be fired. You know, this was actually a big problem that the Biden administration found is they were trying to implement policies that they believed in. And they're, they they were not actually able to, you know, hire or fire or guide people that were in their direct employee. Right. And so functionally speaking, that is no longer an accountable democracy. I mean, if you have government folks who are not accountable to any elected official, um, it's one thing if that's sure. the Supreme Court. Totally agree with that. <laughs> sure. Know, but I mean, Donald Trump is talking, for instance, branch. about ways he might prosecute Uh, political uh, opposition, the way he might expand uh, uh, the the ways you can get after people uh, you disagree with, with the federal government. That's not the same as as, uh, trying to enact a policy about governing or 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 politics uh, as what which is what Biden has been kind of fo- focused on whether you believe he should do it with executive power or not I think there's a substantive difference in what they would do do you not I, I mean I think that very much remains to be seen because you're talking about a former president who had a you know the most serious pandemic in a century on his watch and where if you if Trump wanted to be the dictatorial authoritarian. My God, there is no better opportunity for somebody to seize power than a pandemic. I mean, that is there. That is literally one of the nightmare scenarios that um, you know far preceded the Trump administration. But where folks like myself who are worried about emergency powers and executive powers, where that was the combination that. There's a world in which right. Donald well, Trump or any president could have postponed elections because of a pandemic. Well, he and waited that, until the election to try to seize power. Correct. I mean, he absolutely well, I mean, tried no, to seize power. He, he. Well, I mean, he went through a, a just absolute, you know, clown car process in the post-election period um, of of you know. I mean, my good. I mean, I I lived through all of that, right? Like, you don't need to inform me about sure. the idiocy of so much of that. The challenge was substantively, none of that would have worked, right? It was more the factor of riling up you know, kind of the, the mob violence mm. that I take serious issue with because, you know, the, the system held the areas where there was, you know, insecurities in the system we addressed through legislation. Um, you know, the, the John Eastman memo, like I guarantee you that Mark Elias, the kind of Democratic super lawyer, probably read that and went, oh, man, why didn't we think of these processes? Because they had attempted to do some very same you know, disenfranchised stripping at the same time, they were you know, talking about Donald Trump trying to steal the election and Marionette Miller Meeks race uh, in Iowa that came down to uh, six votes. Um, they were trying to avoid seating her in Congress. So, I mean, I guess I've seen enough on all sides to, mm. to want a pop. Well, I, I, think, I, think that's a hard, I think that's a hard case to make. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Peter Meyer, former congressman and now candidate for the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate in 2024.
before we have to let you go, I do want to talk about some distinctions, perhaps, between you and some of the other people who say they want to be the Republican nominee next year. Mike Rogers, uh, also a former congressman, uh, and James Craig, the former chief of police here in uh, in, in Detroit. Uh, what, what, what would argue, from your standpoint, for voters uh, choosing you over the two of them? No, no I, I have respect for a lot of the other candidates who are in the race, and you know, I think at the end of the day, any Republican, and this is in my view, uh, as a Republican, I think any of them would be preferable to, you know, to be able to break the the cycle that we've had in this state for the past two decades of having kind of monolithic Democratic control um, uh, among our Senate delegation, which, uh, you know, Massachusetts, Delaware, you know, they those states have elected Republican senators more recently than Michigan has, <laughs> uh, and there's I think benefits to having at least a bipartisan Senate delegation. Uh, in terms of being able to negotiate around judicial nominations and uh, U.S. attorney nominations and, and try to drive things a little bit more back to the center as opposed to that getting caught up in a partisan mix. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, those each candidate is going to make their own claims. I think we probably have a lot of policy agreements. My frustration with some of them is maybe they're a little bit more in bed with the system that I think we need to be fighting against and we need to be moving away from. I mentioned the National Republican Senatorial Committee, who's you know very firmly behind Rogers and and clearly uh, by their statement, not in my camp, um, you know, because they want folks who are going to be, you know, team players going to go along to get along. And in my view, that mentality and those teams are exactly what has disgusted so many voters who just feel like Washington is out of touch, that our, the people we send there get co-opted, uh, that they you know, lose. They may have a representative, but that representative may not ultimately uh, speak with their voice or with their concerns first and foremost. They may be more concerned about keeping their job than actually doing it. Okay, uh, Peter Meyer, former congressperson from the west side of Michigan, now a candidate for the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate in 2024. Really great to have you here uh, to talk about your candidacy. I'm going to make you promise that you're going to come back before uh, before the primary early next year to talk about that, how things are going. I appreciate it. I would, like, I would love that, and uh, thank you for your time this yeah. morning. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. And podcast editing is by David Lyons. Our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET in Detroit. And you can support the show by leaving a rating or a comment. Thanks for listening.